Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome back to Reasonable Doubts. News, views, and counter-apologetics for those who won't just take things on faith. I'm Jeremy Bean. With me is David Fletcher. Hey. And Luke Galen. Hi. Start off with some news. I have an article here from Christian Post, the most Christian of posts. Um, not to be confused with Christian Newswire, the most Christian of Newswires. Right, right. It's different. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> This is Apologists Ask Churches to Step Up Response to Militant Atheism. That's right. As more atheist-centered books and movies make their way into mainstream culture, the article begins with two best-selling Christian apologists are encouraging churches to better equip their congregation to respond to what they call a more outspoken and confident atheism. Oh, those cocky bastards. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Mark Middleberg, the author of Becoming a Contagious Christian. Whoa, 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 that's contagious? Watch out. Man. They're actively trying to spread it. It's a communicable disease now. Too bad it's not an STD. It might loosen them up a bit. I'm not touching that one. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Mark Middleberg, author of Becoming a Contagious Christian, says... The arguments are not really new, but the ferociousness with which atheists are lobbing their attacks are coming much stronger. Um, I'm thinking it's actually more just you're hearing about it a little bit more because it's on bestseller lists. The one thing I really don't buy about the new atheists is the idea that they're all that much more aggressive than the old atheists. I think if you crack open a Thomas Paine and start reading some of the stuff you'd find in there, you'd... It would make Dawkins look um, mild by comparison. But nevertheless, the arguments may not be really new, but that's because we're responding to the arguments that they're putting out, which haven't changed since the Middle Ages for the most part. Right. But they say churches need to help reach out to their friends, colleagues, and family members with the good news of Christ. And so the way they propose to do this is to step up the teaching of Christian apologetics in churches. Uh, to try to help Christians defend the faith by learning how to respond to arguments. And you know what? They have some suggestions in here that I, quite frankly, can get behind. They suggest churches could organize panel discussions on, quote, Hmm. hot-button topics in Christianity, such as the resurrection and divinity of Jesus. Uh, Continuing the quote, churches would invite professors and experts from opposing sides to debate selected topics in Christianity or field questions from the audience. And, in fact, I was listening to a a Christian apologetic podcast not too long ago, and the guy who was hosting the show made a very, very strong appeal to what I think was legitimate critical thinking. He really wanted to engage with local communities. He said that he wants more Christians to get behind this, for people to start atheist Christian meetups to have nice civil discussions about these issues. And I think it's fantastic. Um, Absolutely. Not only because I'm a supporter of critical thinking, and I think whenever you get people talking together, 
you help focus the aggression on the arguments and not the individuals that are making them. Right. But also because I think this is the best way for Christianity to shoot itself in the foot. Once they start openly hearing what real atheists say, uh, what the real arguments that they make are, and not just the straw men that are erected by a lot of Christian apologists, I don't think they'll stand a chance. But that's my opinion. I don't think we can ask any more than having open panel discussions of free, free information debate and things like that. No. So let's get behind this. I can support, I can support the mission here of Lee Strobel, Middleburg, and the rest. And, and while I, I do wholeheartedly support it, I have to say I'm a little bit skeptical that they, they mean what they say or that they will actually do what they say they intend to do. Will they actually have open and honest discussions, or will it be these apologist circle jerks? I mean, are they just <laughs> going to um, – will they actually have discussions with people who have widely different ideas, or is it going to be, yeah, I, okay, I can understand how you would think that the world was created in seven calendar days, and I, I believe it took a little bit longer, but, you know, it's all the yeah. same guy, right? Well, you know what? One way to uh, to make sure that they actually do follow on this is to keep them accountable, mm -hmm. a word that Christians love to use, mm -hmm. accountability. Uh, so maybe we need to get this email out there, um, but we'll have the article on our website and a link. And uh, let's send this out to freethinker skeptic groups around the nation, and uh, let's start contacting churches and saying, hey, we saw this on the Christian Post, and we think it's a great idea. We could forward a list of probably at least a dozen people from our group that would be willing to go do panels and, and sit, sit through those things. They would love the chance. I think another good thing about this is that a lot of people on our side, a lot of skeptics, could learn a thing or two, uh, help polish their own arguments, uh, learn how to be um, more persuasive by talking to apologists and by talking to people who mm -hmm. defend Christianity. And uh, in... In the spirit of that, I went looking for an apologist that was considered to be a little more thoughtful on the evangelical side hmm. that we might consider some of his arguments and came upon a very strange and almost disturbing fact. There is a bizarro version of our podcast that exists out there on the internet. Me am reasonable doubts number one. <laughs> geeks, geeks, anyone? Yeah. Let me know that you're listening. If anybody who caught the Bizarro reference should have caught the Superman reference. Yeah, well, I would hope. That's right. There is a Reasonable Faith podcast. Creepy. Yeah. And, and that's actually broadcast from a, a cube-shaped planet. <laughs> um, so they are... Um, Reasonable faith, if you can forgive the... Uh, oxymoron. Thank you. If you can forgive the oxymoron there, they are a podcast that is devoted to marshalling arguments for the existence of God. And the apologist who runs it is none other than William Lane Craig. You may have heard of William Lane Craig. Um, as far as somebody in the more conservative, traditional, theological context, he is considered to be one of the most academically responsible, one of one of the most legitimate 
apologists. He is a philosopher of religion, not hmm. just a popularizer of apologetics. He's debated with some of the top minds on our side, including Eddie Tabash, who he, hmm. we had earlier on the show. One of our very first episodes. Mm -hmm. And he has several core arguments that he believes demonstrate the Christian faith to be more plausible than other options, such as naturalism. And so we were going to take some time on the show to take up a couple of his arguments. The arguments we'll be focusing on are, uh, first of all, his argument from objective morality. Mm, this is a popular one. Yeah. And then we will conclude the show with his argument from the resurrection. Well, this I got it here. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. What is this argument from morality? I'm going to give you the real simple version, and then I'm going to read some quotes from an essay that is available on his website, reasonablefaith.org. Which I still can't get used to saying that. His argument goes like this. If there is no God, objective moral values do not exist. Premise two, objective moral values do exist. Conclusion, therefore, God exists. Okay. Straightforward. Um, yeah. Let's see this fleshed out a bit. Reading from his essay... I want to argue that if God exists, then the objectivity of moral values, moral duties, and moral accountability is secured. In the absence of God, that is, if God does not exist, then morality is just a human convention. That is to say, morality is wholly subjective and non-binding. And that wholly subjective is important. We're going to return to that in just a moment. The fact is that we do apprehend objective values, and we all know it. Actions like rape, torture, child abuse, and brutality are not just socially unacceptable behavior. They are moral abominations. People who fail to see this are just morally handicapped, and there is no reason to allow their impaired vision to call into question what we see clearly. Thus, the existence of objective moral values serves to demonstrate the existence of God. Hmm. All right. Let's take this apart bit by bit. Speaking for myself, I'm going to focus most of my criticisms at the first premise, that if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Uh, specifically, moral values are then wholly subjective. But my co-hosts are free to differ, so please hmm. don't take this as the, the official opinion of the Reasonable Doubts podcast. Okay, let's look at his argument in a little bit more detail. God's own holy and perfectly good nature, says Craig, supplies the absolute standard against which all actions and decisions are measured. God's moral nature is expressed in relation to us in the form of divine commandments, which constitute our moral duties or obligations. Far from being arbitrary, these commands flow necessarily from his moral nature. And then on this foundation, we can affirm the objective goodness 
and righteousness of love, generosity, self-sacrifice, and equality, and condemn as objectively evil and wrong, selfishness, hatred, abuse, discrimination, and oppression. Now, we'll take this one at a time. God's own holy and perfect good nature supplies the absolute standard against which all actions and decisions are measured. Yeah. Okay, where do you even begin with this? I'm going to argue, in response to Craig, that God's holy, in quotations, and perfectly good nature is not even intelligible. Uh, let alone can I give us guidance or somehow even a standard by which our actions and decisions are to be measured. And um, I think demonstrating this is quite simple. Consider the following. If God's holy and perfect good nature gives us an absolute standard by which to judge our actions, then could we use God's nature to judge murder to be wrong? Sure, why couldn't we? Well, there's that thing called the Bible. Oh, that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, God does command us that we should not kill. However, we see on numerous occasions that God is not bound by this particular commandment. For example, he can order the death of men, women, and children, the practice of harem in the Old Testament, uh, in the Holy Land. You can read all about it in the book of Joshua. Like Joshua 8, where they slaughtered uh, everybody, men, women, and children, on God's command. That's right. Including pregnant women, was it? There's the uh, the numbers ones, too, where they slaughtered people, and but they kept the virgins for the, the men to, you know, obviously you need to keep the virgins. No, right. that's right. Numbers 31. Numbers also instructs them to keep the trees because deforestation would clearly be crossing the line. First Samuel 15 has them slaughter children and infants of the Amalekites tribe. Um, you even get instances where 70,000 Israelites will be wiped out uh, because David didn't take a census, right? He counted the military men in the census. and uh, you Well, know, clearly yeah. that justifies So, So murder can't be judged wrong by his absolute perfect standard. Uh, we also wouldn't be able to judge deception or dishonesty mm-hmm. as being wrong. I'm not denying that the Bible instructs us that thou shalt not lie, but again, this is not a commandment that is in any way binding to God. God finds it perfectly acceptable to delude, send a strong delusion upon other nations, harden Pharaoh's heart, mm-hmm. and to prevent people from seeing his truth, from repenting, and that sort of thing. God is free to manipulate people's beliefs in the most dishonest way possible. So we can't even judge something simple like honesty to be wrong against that standard. Jealousy, I shouldn't have to even go there. We know that God, above all, is jealous. And and doesn't the Holy Spirit himself engage in premarital sex with, with the Virgin Mary? I think she signed a consent form, though, didn't she? Well, yeah. hey, without the ring, it ain't the real thing. So, like, well, Jeremy, doesn't this all go back to like Socrates and Plato's uh, Plato's dialogue, where Socrates says, "Is if what is good is good, uh, independent of God, then God has no choice but to agree with it. And if God determines what is good, then God is merely kind of a divine bully or a capricious 
lawmaker that can say we can make rape or murder good if he wanted to. So yeah, the question is God is God a might makes right God? And if you want to say that God's God is amoral, that he just whatever he says is what counts as morality, mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't have to actually live up to any sort of standard. Um, well, fine, but most Christians don't want to believe in that God. They believe their God deserves and has earned righteousness. And if that's the case, then yes, we have a standard outside of God that he must follow. And it's interesting that they use their own kind of criteria of psychologically as to what is offensive or not to screen out. If you look at all the apologetics things, I mean, if you really believe that whatever God does is final, mm-hmm. you wouldn't need a, even apologetics. Right. Because you can simply say, well, killing the children was okay because God did it and that makes it okay. But the fact that there are the people who try to rationalize it, which there's reams and reams of apologetic rationalization for, well, they were really Amalekites were evil people and so the children deserve to be blah, blah, blah. The fact that those exist means that those people are trying to reconcile the actions with their own psychological or cultural sense of what right. is good. Or, and where mm-hmm. does that come from? Right. Why is it that we feel... The golden rule doesn't need any rationalization because it's patently obvious. You know, Jesus said this, Mm -hmm. it's good. But then all these Old Testament primarily rules have to be rationalized by what what is the uh, indicator, the tripwire that's tripping those efforts to say, oh, he didn't really mean it that way. Why can't we clearly perceive those moral truths? Incidentally, I want to point out uh, that William Lane Craig is very fond of talking about, uh, well, from an atheistic point of view, He'll talk about the Nazis. We're not talking about the Holocaust being evil, he'll say, um, just because socially it it was not accepted now. Uh, If what they did in the Holocaust is wrong, it's wrong. It would be wrong regardless of whether or not Hitler succeeded, regardless of whether or not he managed to brainwash or kill everybody who disagreed with him. If you look at the Bible... You can't condemn genocide in principle. I don't know where he's coming from. You would have to say that, like, for example, the Holocaust was wrong because it was committed by Nazis in 20th century Europe against Jews instead of the context where it is acceptable by Jews in biblical times within the borders of the Holy Land. They come streaming down from the hillsides, and if you're a Canaanite, well, you just have to up and move or die because... They want your lands, and it's promised to the Jews. So Sounds like the Sudan. So he can't that. appeal to an objective moral principle here either, free from context. Um, so his second point is, well, okay, what about these commandments? Uh, God's moral nature is expressed in relation to us in the form of divine commandments, again, which he says are far from being arbitrary. This is not a might makes right. These commands flow necessarily from his moral nature. Well, I think we've debunked that too because... What it means for God to be righteous is not just what it means for a human being to be righteous, only perfect to a higher degree, Mm. to a more perfect, like he follows those divine commandments perfectly. Um, That is clearly not the case because he violates them left and right. God's righteousness is of an entirely different kind. If there is a moral standard for him to follow, it's never defined for us, cannot be the one that's in the law. So whatever it means for God to be righteous, we don't know what that is. It's impossible to find a criteria. And so God's nature, as I said before, his holiness is unintelligible. If it's unintelligible, it can't give us guidance and it can't give us a standard. Does he get into why this, there are similarities and differences in moral codes of cultures that have nothing to do with biblical judeo 
Middle Eastern culture? Like why in, in New Guinea or something right. where they have laws about things like kinship and killing and this is the group you can mess with and the group you can't? Why does he right. get into why moral standards? Some of them are the same, but some are different. Well, that's something that he just doesn't feel he needs to justify. He views that it's self-evident. He would believe that was from, you know, from God. It's written on your hearts. It's God has implanted a moral. Uh, I believe the actual words he used were um, um, we are capable of perceiving these moral objective values. Now, if he's going to say that, that things like murder and stealing are universal, then you don't need the Christian Bible to tell you that murder and stealing are wrong. Every culture has had those laws. And if he's going to argue, though, that there, um, <clears throat> that that you need specifically Christian things, how would he account for the fact that some people make all cultures make exceptions? That is, right. many many people say yes, don't kill, but it's not killing them for warfare or capital punishment. Or, that everybody makes these little exceptions to that. If God's going to write the moral law into people's brains in New Guinea and Africa, right. whatever, mm-hmm. why didn't He go all the way and write the Christian? Judeo-Christian moral law in their brains. Why have this half-formed, yeah, don't kill people, I just know it because God put it there, but wait, he never got around to telling me specifically what that meant. Well, fantastic little inconsistency, and I'm sure they could throw in the whole sin nature thing to try to shore up their their doctrines. But again, now we're multiplying premises, and um, the whole point of his argument is that he doesn't need to assume the truth. Well, and it's interesting that he, he just asserts these things as being self-evident. And like you say, well, what about (laughs) all the exceptions that people make? One of the examples that he uses is just self-evident. That doesn't need to be argued. Uh, If people won't accept this argument, then they're just not worth arguing with in the first place. And that, that case is that it is wrong to torture and murder a child rather than to love them and nurture them. And uh, does anybody remember the whole um, blessed are they who dash the little ones upon the stones? Um, Psalm 137. Where the Hebrews glory in the bashing of skulls of the children of their enemies. Something the Nazis also did. If this is self-evidently wrong, so much so that this can only be accounted for for God, well then he he just has no basis on which to, to ground his own claims here. If I can make a plug, the um, the book The Moral Minds by Mark Hauser mm-hmm. gets into all these issues, uh, but not in a half-assed way where he just pulls us out of his head, but experiments that, that detail the contours of morality, uh, you know, that they've done. For example, um, across different cultures, they do this trolley problem where you can make the decision about whether to shunt a trolley off and kill one versus five people. They and did that on Radio Lab. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And on PBS is Scientific American. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, but you, people are willing to, you know, shunt off and kill one person regrettably rather than five, but not shove the fat guy into the track. But this thing they do across cultures, they've given it to, you know, Taiwanese and to Russians or whatever, and more or less people's responses are the same to that. Everybody shows the the contradiction between not wanting to actively shove the person, and they've done other lifeboat scenarios where you can choose to throw a certain person over, right, but person or a dog, or, or, or and they're universal across religions, across this. Mm-hmm. How would somebody account for that from some sort of specifically? parochial Judeo-Christian view that some of the general moral contours, now clearly cultures differ with regards to what is a human, is a fetus, Mm -hmm. or those sort of things, and those are cultural differences. But how would somebody who says morality itself, 
right. in broad strokes. It, how, how would they account for the fact that those are universal and the religiousness of a person doesn't make a difference? Christians, mm-hmm. atheists, everybody responds to those scenarios more or less the same way. At, at least in their brain. They may decide differently, but the same, the same areas same brain of the activities, brain are, are firing. This is a biological stamped yeah. responses of kill uh, out groups is easier than killing an in-group or mm-hmm. kin mm-hmm. preference, my, my tribe versus another tribe or innocent persons <laughs> versus uh, morally abhorrent. You know, people would shove Hitler out of the lifeboat, but not... Gandhi or something like that. I mean, all those distinctions are made equally across religions and cultures. And it's very easy to see biological roots in things like that. Exactly. Why is it easier to kill an out-group than an in-group? It's not because God said so. It's because that's the way we're wired, to look out for our own tribe, our bloodline. So let's hold him to his own criteria of judgment here, his own standard. He says that for his philosophical proofs to be considered valid, mm-hmm. um, they need not be proved with 100% certainty. They only need to be shown more plausible than the alternatives. So, let's have a moment of intellectual honesty here. What do you really think fits the data better? The view that these are somehow transcendent moral universals or that these are biologically programmed preferences when we had Paul Kurtz on the show a while back, he talked about a lot of these same mm-hmm. ideas. Does naturalism fare any better than his attempt at trying to ground morality? He says, if there is no God, then any ground for regarding the herd morality of uh, the herd morality evolved by Homo sapiens as objectively true seems to have been removed. So he'll acknowledge that we might be able to find some sort of biological basis for our morality. But he says this can't get us to anything that is can seriously be considered objective. Some action, uh, say incest, he says, may not be biologically or socially advantageous. And so in the course of human evolution has become taboo. Okay. But There is, on the atheistic view, nothing really wrong about committing incest. And get this, he says, if, as Paul Kurtz says, the moral principles that govern our behavior are rooted in habit and custom, feeling, and fashion, he says, then the nonconformist who chooses to flout the herd morality is doing nothing more serious than acting unfashionably. So... Mm. He'll admit a biological ground, but he says if we break with it, because that's just completely arbitrary, because it's completely subjective, wholly subjective, it, it really doesn't give us a ground for accepting any anything like objective moral truths. One of the great things about being part of CFI Michigan is the wonderful library we have, <laughs> so that When I read an argument like this, I can turn around, literally, (laughs) spin my swivel chair and grab the very book that he is quoting. And I'd like to read to you the point that immediately follows his little quote from Paul Kurtz. He quotes Kurtz as saying, one more time, the moral principles that govern our behavior are rooted in habit, custom, feeling, and fashion. The very next sentence is... Ethical principles emerge in the same rich soil of human experience, but are now consciously watered and pruned by critical intelligence. 
Intelligence translates arbitrary rules into informed judgments that are fashioned in the light of reason. This point is vital. So Wow. Nice of him to actually yeah. point that out for, for the people who are quoting him. Great little uh, uh, attempt at intellectual integrity there, Mr. Jeez. William Lane Craig. That's right. Use your opponents to frame the issue in the way that you want to, but completely divorce it from the context. Yes, Kurtz, in this passage he's using, is addressing the very same problem that he's pointing out. Uh, really what, what William Lane Craig is doing here is he's setting up a, a forced choice. Mm-hmm. We have a false dilemma here between accepting either um, some sort of transcendent objective morality or choosing a completely subjective, naturalistically grounded morality, whereas he never considers the idea that perhaps morality has both objective and subjective components. Maybe, yes, the initial biological impulse that informs our values and that makes things like being happy seem better than being than suffering, mm-hmm. maybe those things are biologically derived, but that doesn't mean that we can't scrutinize them in the light of reason. That's the naturalistic fallacy that, that just because something is means it ought to be. And I yeah. don't know any I don't know any right. people like all the evolutionary thinkers, Steven Pinker take pains to say just because something might have a natural impulse to kill somebody or to, you know, if somebody's injured you to retaliate doesn't mean that that is right. That's why we have over the Mm -hmm. years developed societal legal codes to contravene natural impulses. Exactly. And so, you know, I don't think, who who are these atheists he's arguing that are like these kind of Nietzschean supermen that says just because I feel something or it's it's right? I don't know anybody who's making that argument. He finds a handful of quotes, who knows if those are in context to support this, but doesn't try to actually ever address people on the other side that mm. do make these arguments. And, and it's also interesting that they make a transcendent argument for Judeo-Christian morality, but in practice, they mm-hmm. essentially engage in the same behavior of using their own screen. We talked about this just a minute ago to sort through biblical rules. I mean, why are there so many different denominations that disagree on the rules if it's so transcended and mm-hmm. laid down? So in essence, uh, I would agree that people... Uh, pick and choose without a transcendent goal. But that's what religious people do anyway is pick and choose, even with their supposed transcendent Right. And right. even Bases. if you believe that, that God says murder is wrong, okay? God says murder is wrong. Therefore, murder is wrong. You still have to decide whether or not you're going to follow that rule. You still have to make right. a decision, and you have to base that decision-making on the exact same criteria that a scientific naturalist would use. Mm-hmm. Just because God says it's wrong doesn't make you into a puppet that makes it impossible for you to do that. You have to decide you in, still in have a to given situation or not. What, he said, he says, so not? what do you say to someone who concludes that we may just as well live as we please out of pure self-interest? Well, what do you say to somebody who isn't afraid of going to hell? Yes, we both do share the problem that it is it is hard to address somebody who is mentally abnormal and would want suffering and would want hell or that sort of thing. But that is no problem. And and what's more of a yeah, what's more of a free will argument? The fact that I can't do this because some sky daddy is telling me not to or I'm going to restrain myself from doing this because Mm -hmm. it's in in societal interest. Golden rule. I wouldn't want Dave to hit me so I don't hit him or I, I, I don't speed on the highway because it would be a chaos if everybody sped on the highway. Those are the basis that atheists make all the time. You don't need a sky daddy to tell you that. That's free will. 
or in a semblance of free will rather than saying, oh, I can't do it because I'm obedient to a divine authority. Right. Mm-hmm. People who make this argument terrify me because it's like, oh, so if the security camera isn't on in the grocery exactly. store, you're just right. going to take whatever. If you're not going to get caught, just murder. That's terrifying. And, and that's what they think of us, and, and it's ridiculous. I had a, a childhood friend who's, who's a super Christian who says, if I thought that there wasn't a God watching over me, I would I could do anything I want. I would go crazy and steal and, and murder and things like that, and that's scarier. Thank goodness yeah. that person believes in a God. And, and atheism is pessimistic, and Christianity is optimistic. That Then I'm, I'm glad religion exists just for those <laughs> for people. people I mean, if nothing else, because if it keeps them from committing atrocities, and, and of course, often it leads them to commit atrocities. But if it stops some people from from doing that, then good, you believe in however many gods you want to. So, Mr. William Lane Craig, your first premise has some major holes. God cannot give you a basis for objective morality. And um, outside of it, to quote Michael Martin, morality can be objective in the sense of being impartial and unbiased. That is, if we scrutinize our subjective, biologically based impulses to certain behavior and apply reason to them, we can start forming a non-arbitrary, rationally based approach to ethics. To to me, I think this really just demonstrates the lack of intellectual integrity that a lot of apologists have to uh, to so misrepresent and quote out of context their opponents, uh, to not consider relevant critiques. Um, I, I think that's that's really inexcusable, and it made me start thinking: where would we be without skepticism? What if this bizarro world were bigger? All of the defenders of skepticism, of scientific epistemology, in this alternative bizarro universe are going to be transformed into apologists. We are going to look at the bizarro version of the great Carl Sagan and the Cosmos series. In this bizarro universe, he is Reverend Carl Sagan, and it's not Cosmos, it's Logos. Funding for Logos with Reverend Carl Sagan provided by the Discovery Institute, Focus on the Family, and the generous support of viewers like you. The night sky calls to us. On a clear night, we look overhead to see a vast canopy of stars. Cold, distant, faintly glowing, it's natural to feel small and 
insignificant compared to the mighty grandeur of the cosmos? Who wouldn't? There is no sign that there is anything at all special about this tiny world. We appear to be just a drop in a vast cosmic ocean. But the Bible paints a very different view of man's place in the grand scheme. This pale blue dot, seemingly small and insignificant, existed before the sun, moon, and stars. It is the footstool of the very creator himself. Far from insignificant, this planet is the stage on which the entire drama of creation unfolds. Though just one species among billions, humanity is the only of God's creatures to share in his image. We speak for Earth. We have been given divine authority to take dominion over all life. This, the greatest of all worlds, exists solely for our benefit. This truth was accepted without question for centuries, until it was challenged in the early days of the scientific revolution. It was then that blasphemous and ignorant men, men like Galileo, Kepler, Bacon and Locke rejected the self-evident truths reinforced by scripture and the clergy in favor of mere theories based on observation and experiment. It is true that we have all benefited from some of the discoveries of secular science, but by preaching reliance on scientific method over natural theology, by divorcing fact from faith, they have significantly set back the human endeavor. Yet in our time, there is great reason for hope. Religion is slowly finding its way back into science. What started in the church has spread to Congress, and perhaps soon may even find a way into the classroom. And from there, who knows? A new scientific revolution is taking place. And this time, it's biblical science that is capturing the imagination of the masses. Perhaps the best way to explain the spectacular success of biblical science is to see it in action. Whether it's finding gaps in the fossil record or discovering the cure for homosexuality, at the Discovery Institute, creation scientists rigorously apply methods of biblical science to a host of evangelical concerns. But perhaps the most astonishing finding comes from studying the Bible itself. Here is a passage from John chapter 4, shown at a hundred times magnification. Using the inferior methods of naturalistic science, we would find nothing but ink. Just dark splotches on a page. But let's examine its pages more closely. This time through the microscope of faith. We behold a miracle that utterly defies logic. It seems that, through some as-yet-to-be-identified process, God imparts truth to these letters. When read, this knowledge is then transferred directly into the brain of the believer. 
via the optic nerve. We call this process Photolinguistic Revelatory Transmission, or PRT for short. None of the instruments here can detect PRT rays. In fact, no existing scientific instrument can. From this, creation scientists have inferred that PRT rays are probably composed of spirit. Researchers correctly predicted that the flow of truth would be inhibited when skeptical subjects were exposed to PRT rays. But a shocking and counterintuitive discovery was made when born-again subjects were exposed to Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species. It was found that whatever force is behind the believer's receptiveness to truth it also appears to play a similar role in providing immunity to falsehood. But how could this be? Is there a satanic equivalent to PRT rays? Most find this idea very implausible. The one provocative theory that is gaining momentum suggests that faith might act as a kind of semi-permeable membrane, letting in righteous propositions and discarding ones that conflict with true dogma. It is too early to say, but it is fascinating to think that we might soon know the answer. Biblical science puts us face to face with life's deepest mysteries. It gives us the power to answer questions that conventional science wouldn't even consider asking. The striking success of biblical science over its secular rivals is due to its superior method. How much trust would you put in a theory that was always changing? Science routinely rids itself of old theories and replaces them with new. Some scientists argue that this is a virtue of science. Why, after all, would you want to cling to a false theory? I would tend to agree. I can't see any reason to accept a falsehood over a truth. But wouldn't it be much better never to make a mistake in the first place? On matters such as the age of the earth and the origins of life, Biblical science has found no need to adjust their theories, nor the arguments that support them. In fact, very little change has gone on at all in centuries. Scientific apologists often point to the supposed success of their theories as a reason for accepting their methods. They point to longer lifespans due to modern medicine, the mapping of the human genome and the splitting of the atom. But their arrogance is a thin disguise, hiding a deep fear. Watch the behavior of any real scientist, and you'll soon see that they are clearly aware of how fallible they are. Look how they obsess over the design of their experiments, terrified at the possibility of any hidden variable that might corrupt their results. And the arduous peer review process they will endure to publish even modest results. And after all that, many still won't trust their own ideas until others have repeated the same experiments and gotten the same results. Science by its own admission can never reach final certainty. All theories must be subject to revision in the light of new evidence. If they don't have confidence in their theories, why should we? 
But no amount of evidence can ever shake the certainty of faith. The Bible-based sciences are unfettered by limitations of critical self-reflection. It rests not on the shifting sands of observation and experiment, but on the bedrock of revelation. Trusting this, a creation scientist begins every new inquiry, already knowing the conclusions he will find. He need only find the right arguments to support them. The Greek term for word is logos, but it stands for more than just ordinary speech. It's an intelligent principle, transcendent to the natural world. The Gospel writer John identified logos with God's revelation to mankind in the person of Jesus. He begins his gospel, In the beginning was the word of God. In the beginning was the Logos. It's been nearly two millennia since John penned his gospel, and we still call the Bible the word of God. The ancient Greeks believed in an ordered, complex, and beautiful universe. The totality of this physical world was called cosmos. Early on, the Apostle Paul recognized cosmos as a snare and identified it with slavery to sin, corruption of the flesh. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this cosmos, he said, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So many of the most promising among us still seek truth in the cosmos. They grope blindly in the dark, trapped in the old paradigm of data collection, hypothesis generation, and experimental testing. But every day there are more of us who have courage to walk the more narrow path. And just imagine if we shifted the paradigm to more biblical methods of inquiry. Deference to authority, selection of evidence, demonizing of opponents, and a bold, unflinching literalism meticulously applied to biblical texts. Then, trusting in Logos, unbound from the shackles of reason and evidence, there would be no limits to what we could justify. All right, moving on. The second argument of William Lane Craig's that we're going to look at today is the argument from the resurrection. Now, William Lane Craig claims that the same criteria that are applied by critical historians to the biblical account, then you would have no choice but to see that the most reasonable explanation of the existence of the early church and of the testimonials to the fact that the tomb was empty the most plausible explanation is that Jesus did indeed resurrect. And therefore, if the resurrection is true, this is evidence that God exists. Does he get into why uh, if, if an event historically suggested to have happened and people believed it, therefore it happened, mm -hmm. why other religions, you know, is there some kind of like since Buddha was did this, the Buddhists witnessed it, that must have been true because it was written down in Buddhist scripture and people believed it? Oh, I, I don't know. If he does, he certainly doesn't address it here. 
Um, because, yes, you, I could think you could... For example, one of the parts of his argument is that the followers of Jesus were predisposed to not believe in a resurrection. They uh, thought a resurrection would take place at the end of the world. Um, and the idea that somebody who was crucified uh, here on earth could resurrect now, not before the kingdom had been ushered in, he thinks is so implausible, completely, it would be a viewpoint that would be so unfamiliar and blasphemous to early Christians that the only reason why they could have accepted it is if it really happened. So yeah, why couldn't you just as easily say when the Buddha claimed that Atman was not real, it, the soul was not the ultimate source uh, nirvana and freedom from suffering, but in fact the soul was the very cause of suffering, that was so completely unpredictable <laughs> to the mind of a Hindu sage that he must truly have been enlightened. He's kind of using that to the way what textual critics use, and that is some of the principles of unusualness. If there's yeah. an unusual version of something and people believe it, therefore that's authentic. Right. So it is an attempt to sort of twist a legitimate biblical critic's criteria to support that claim. Of course, though, what about the possibility that Jesus died? They thought he was the Messiah, but he clearly wasn't because he was killed. So then they needed to come up with some story to explain that he didn't really die. It was an eschatological event of bringing on the age and then writing as if he resurrected. Why can't they have just done it to explain why he died? Uh, that's completely implausible. He must have been resurrected. That's the, making stuff up. That's clearly somebody rising from the dead. Um, that makes more sense. That, than, that than, does make yeah. more sense. Well, they were persecuted. Right. Let's not forget the early church and the early apostles. Some of them were persecuted for believing in something they would have clearly known was a lie. And we don't have any situations, contemporary or otherwise, where people would uh, essentially commit suicide for some cultic belief that maybe they, some of them definitely knew was not real. Um, Jonesville, uh, People's yeah. Temple, oh, Heaven's shit. Gate. Yeah, you're right. Well, he claims to use the same criteria that historians are using. He says he examines the literary testimony to the life and death of the resurrection. He says um, we don't treat them as religious documents. We treat them as what they are, separate documents written in Greek. And we're going to ask ourselves how reliable are these documents. Uh, among his criteria is the degree to which the stories appear contrived. I don't know how anyone could do a careful reading of the resurrection accounts and, first of all, get the idea that they, are, they should count as separate documents, separate testimonies, when much of them clearly tries to repeat um, some of the same stuff from Mark, Mark being the first. Uh, but also... I'm wondering what his criteria is for being contrived. How do we mm. show that something is not contrived? What would you look for if you were going to be looking at a text to try to see if the story was contrived? Mm, you'd look for differences with um, other versions or, or um, uh, some type of 
crazy exaggerations or something. And, mm-hmm. and does it conform with the way we experience reality? Are there things in there that are outside, and entirely outside the realm of, of reasonable possibility? Mm-hmm. Add in there a general lack of agreement on the most basic facts of the situation, and perhaps um, additions to stories that seem to serve local parochial needs and doctrines. I would think those would all be good ways to show that maybe a story was contrived, right? Seems like it to me. Hmm. Well, I wonder if we can find any examples of this in, say, the resurrection account, in the account of the empty tomb. I just happen to have a Bible here. Let's look at it. How convenient. Wasn't, weren't the epistles written before the Gospels? Um, Most of them? Yes, some of yeah, Paul's. Yeah, Most Paul of Paul's. Was, yep. So he makes, I, they, um, they may often make reference to the in the Corinthians where they give, Paul gives a list of the people who were supposedly saw Jesus resurrected. So this hmm. is in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I passed on to you what I received, which is of the greatest importance. Christ died for our sins, as written in the scriptures that he was buried and raised to life. And that he appeared to Peter, and then to 12 apostles, and then to more than 500 of his followers at once, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. Then he appeared to James. That seems pretty convincing when he says that he appeared. And then he says, last of all, he appeared also to me. Paul? Yes. Even though we know Paul never met physically Jesus, he had a road Mm -hmm. to Damascus experience where he appeared in a vision. Right. Mm-hmm. So is it possible that the, all the other appearances were also in not a physical sense, but in a visual, personal mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when we use the phrase, he appeared to 500 people, does he really mean 500 people had visions or intuitions that Jesus was around? Perhaps mm-hmm. on a piece of toast or something? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, or a, a salt stain on a highway underpass, maybe. That's right. And then all the gospel accounts differ as, as to what happened at the resurrection or afterwards. You, you can, you know, as J- Jeremy said, you can, any close reading of them that side by side shows differences. You know, you Matthew, you have earthquakes and mm-hmm. other people being resurrected from the dead. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, John neglect to mention all those things. You'd think that would be something that yeah, you'd want to bring up. Yeah, a whole bunch of zombies rising up would, would probably make the news. I would expect to see that, in fact, in not just biblical accounts. Yeah. Here's a quick breakdown of just some of the marginal little points to do with the resurrection story. Mm-hmm. Nitpicking. Yeah, nitpicking sure. stuff. But, uh, you know, this is important if we're going to validate how credible these things are. Uh, Mark, we have three visitors at the tomb, uh, Mary Magdalene, another Mary, and Salome. Matthew, we have only two visitors, Mary Magdalene uh, and some other person named Mary. And the book of Luke, um, we have at least five visitors, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and, quote, others in Luke 24.10. And in the Gospel of John, we have initially only one visitor, and that is Mary Magdalene. In John, Mary Magdalene is visiting while it's still dark. In Luke, it's early dawn. In Matthew, it's towards dawn. And in Mark, it's after sunrise. Where was the stone? In Mark, it's already rolled away. In Matthew, uh, it's still in the place when they arrived, and it gets rolled away later. In Luke, it's already rolled away, and, and John agrees. 
Who was there to tell them about it? In Mark, there's one young man as the messenger. Maybe an angel, maybe not. Who knows? One young man is all it says. Matthew, there's one angel. And Luke, there's two men. And in John, first there's no one, and then there's two angels, and then there's Jesus. What happened after the empty tomb was discovered? In Matthew, the women left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell the, his disciples and Jesus meets them and says greetings <coughs> and they come to him took hold of his feet and worshiped him this is from Matthew 28:7 through 20 uh, he says do not be afraid go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me so they go and they tell the 11 in Galilee and they the people see him on a mountain in Galilee, and they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, in Luke, what happens? They don't go just to some of the disciples. She goes directly to the disciples themselves. They told all this to the eleven and to the rest. So all the disciples there are present and need to be told. They don't need to go be found in Galilee. And he's, uh, he ascends on the same day on Luke. Mm -hmm. It's all on the same day. He goes right up immediately afterwards and shoots up to heaven. That's right. Now, so just a uh, quick stop. in the Luke account, he's out of there. In the Luke account, Peter, when he hears about this, gets up and runs to the tomb. Very dramatic. Yes. Sees there. He sees the linen cloths by themselves. It says, and he went home amazed at what happens. Now, in John, the same story. Peter and the other disciple were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Although Peter went in first. He bent down. Yeah, I'm sure that's how the justification is. He bent down to look there and saw the wrappings. And then later on, it keeps on drawing attention to this. And then the other disciple... Whom Jesus loved. Yes. Which reached the tomb first. <laughs> um... Does that not sound perhaps a little contrived as if maybe there's some local squabble as to whether or not Peter or John or the disciple that Jesus loved? In a book that in the crowning achievement of a resurrection doesn't even bother to cover all the things Jesus said, but instead the whole book of John ends with a squabble between Peter saying, why are you treating John better? Why do you love him better than me? Mm -hmm. The important thing there was to establish who Jesus was best buds with, BFF. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A yeah. foot race is more important than what Jesus has to say. Of course, though, you know, we're treating these not as religious documents, but just, you know, historical mm -hmm. testimonies here. They, they do all agree that, that he resurrected. Yeah. I, mean, I guess we could say they agree on the most essential part. But come on, we're supposed to believe that the testimony is so watertight and so unexpected that the only explanation is a supernatural event. That's really the, the most plausible explanation. To well, <clears throat> Dave says they all agree, but if you count the, not to be too textual about this, but if you count that the earliest copies of Mark don't have the resurrection, they end just with the women went ran away from the tomb and they were afraid. The other part was clearly tacked on. In other, really? words, in other words, the first gospel that was ever written, all the other ones were based on it, did not have 
a resurrection. It just had an empty tomb. Yeah. Um, the original ending, they believe, is somewhere around 65 to 70 CE, and it ends with them fleeing from the tomb. They are told by the messenger, says, do not alarm, you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has been raised, but they never witness him. And that's how the original texts end. That's and they a said, way to end a story. not only do they flee the tomb, what do the women do? Tell someone? Well, I hope so. You know, women can't keep a secret. It says, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, if that doesn't set up an awkward transition to the ending that was then tacked on, yes, I don't know what right. does. Because then they said, after Jesus arose, and then they repeated the description of Mary. Who they just in, dis- that's verses 16, 9 through 17. Yeah, then they said, um, after Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday, he appeared, appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had driven out seven demons. Why would you need to re-describe <laughs> somebody who you just <laughs> described <laughs> in the previous page? And these these date, the earliest we can find this in the manuscripts is in the... The, the late 100s of the common era, where they, they have to give a little bit more detail. And they try to say that Mary told those who they had been with, not that they were afraid and said nothing to no one. Mm-hmm. And then later it says he appeared to the eleven. And yeah. then he did all the then he does all the other things that he said. So does that sound tacked on to you or Oh yeah, yeah. See and now, now the argument I'm always given for, you know, why aren't there gospel accounts written contemporaneous with the events is oral tradition, oral tradition. Okay, fine, it's a, it's a, a group of people who definitely had an oral tradition, but you don't write down most of the story and go, okay, that, that last part about him actually showing up after he resurrected, Right. we don't have to worry about writing that part down. We'll write that part down, and, you know, half a century later or whatever. That's ridiculous. The oral tradition argument falls apart there mm-hmm. as far as that goes. Yeah, the the account shows no no real reliability. It clearly shows evolution when you look at most plausible uh, candidates for being the earliest texts to the later ones. There's clearly a development of themes. This is this is a fish story. I think that's the most important thing. Even if you're like, uh, even if you're not particularly skeptical, you could, I don't see anyone that can doubt that there is not a development over time. Right now, mm-hmm. if you and if you buy that, then why can't the resurrection itself be a development that was added on? Where do you draw the line and say, nope, he had to have been resurrected? Yes, maybe the specifics were developed right. over time, but not the resurrection. Why? Where's the Where's the cutoff there? Mm-hmm. That as soon mm-hmm. as you agree. I mean, obviously, this is what's threatening. As soon as you agree that part of it was redacted or altered, you're pretty much into then how do you know other parts weren't redacted Mm -hmm. or altered? Well, so I think it's safe to say that he can't marshal this as an argument for reasonable faith. But I think it makes a great example of a reasonable doubt. Well, we haven't done the shit list in a while, but we got a very special listener-submitted shit list. This is from Eric Green. Eric Green is a uh, is a local listener here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he got 
this letter in the mail from Dave Ajima, a promotional flyer for a representative of ours here in West Michigan. He delivered this to me personally and said, as soon as I saw this, I knew it was shitless material, <laughs> and I tend to agree. Let me just read you the most juicy part of this nice little letter from State Representative Dave Ajima. I am economically and socially conservative. I incorporate my Christian values and my faith into my private and public life. I believe the government should stay out of the marketplace and the church, not vice versa. I believe government deficits are spending problems, not revenue problems, and that welfare should be a safety net, not a hammock. I believe in the right to life and marriage between one man, one woman. If legislation supports these core principles, I vote for them. If not, I don't. And I believe your view of the world is superficial based on ridiculous assumptions and the fact that you would make your policy decisions based on those three concerns shows to me that you should not be my representative. So, yes, David Adjama, I, uh, I'm very, very happy to put you on the Reasonable Doubts shit list. And thank you so much, Eric Green, for sending this in to us. If any other listeners have candidates for the shit list, please send them in. We'd love to air your submission. Should we particularly recommend that our international listeners send in those things because they're probably different than our local items? I would love to hear some of the people that would make the shit list in Japan, for example, where we have where we have our first confirmed listener. Um, Konnichiwa. <laughs> yes. And I hear we have one in Australia, too. We have at, at least one in Australia who, um, G'day, by the way, um, who I've been corresponding with through Facebook, which brings me to my props list this week. Uh, on the props list, I would like to submit our Facebook group. That's the Reasonable Doubts podcast. You can find us on Facebook. Just do a search. We're there. It's a great group. I've gotten to know a few of the listeners through the Facebook group. Feel free to sign up and friend me because I'm a big old Facebook whore and I'll take all the <laughs> friends I can get. Um, and I've had some really great correspondence with all of you out there. And those of you who are on Facebook and are not yet a part of our group, please find us and join up. Uh, we'll get some discussions going on the board there and yeah. just a great way to gets no reasonable doubts listeners from around the globe. And we've gotten some good suggestions, I think, for the show. I mean, some Absolutely. really great ideas from people. Okay, I want to add to the props list, too, then. This is a listener review, since it's the self-promotion version of right. <laughs> the props shit list. This is from Evil Genius 20 <laughs> It says, brilliant, to our podcast. Uh, but why I wanted to point it out is that um, he says... Keep up the good work. You have a lot of loyal listeners here in South Florida. Don't take that <clears throat> nice weather for granted. That's right. And uh, I was able to contact him a little bit further. I was able to find him via Facebook mm -hmm. and find out that he's talking about Florida International University, where apparently we have several listeners. So Fantastic. Yeah, a little uh, shout out to our Floridian listeners. Your, your encouragement has brought us a little bit of warmth on Ice Planet Hoth. Please take us away from this 
<laughs> Icy. Oh, all right. <laughs> That'll be a wrap for this week's show. Please remember to email any of your questions, comments, challenges, etc. to doubtcast at gmail.com. And find us on Facebook. Adios. links or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Josh Dunnigan helped with recording. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission.